the omnipotent God, the omnipresent God. This is what you have to work with to understand a great, big, beyond our wildest calculations, God. So if you don't understand everything, give yourself a little break. All right? If you, if you think you can explain God, I invite you to read the last, oh, say, five chapters of the book of Job. If you haven't been reading along with us, that's where we've just finished. We just finished Job. We're moving into Exodus now. But at the end of Job, if there's anything else that is clear, if anything else is being stated, it is clearly stating, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. And I think that, that starts us in a good place because we're going to be talking about the authority of God. We're going to be talking about something much bigger than our understanding. Could I get a slide up there? We're going to be talking about the authority of God and our personal choice. We're going to be talking about the authority of God and our choice in this world with the reality of suffering. So the authority of God, our choice, and the impact on suffering. Got it? The authority of God, our choice, and the impact on suffering. One of the big things that's going on all the time around us, people are always asking the same questions. Why did this have to happen? Why is that going on? What is, and the, the, the atheist or the uh, agnostic or the, just the anti-Christian person will often say, if God is so good, then why this? If God is so amazing, then why this? We, we've had enough of these things lately. We have seen fires blow through Santa Rosa and Redding and now, and, and now Paradise. And we've just seen amazing destruction here in Northern California let alone Southern California, let alone the, 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 the hurricanes that have blown through, a lot of things here in the United States in recent years, to kind of give us an opportunity to, to clarify our thinking, to start to say, hey, wait a second, what's going on in our world? And lots of people who are on the fringes of whether or not they want to believe in God have started to struggle with this. It's probably come across your mind. Folks who are in the, in the path of some of this destruction, especially, start to ask the question, look, why did this happen the way it happened? Some of those whose houses survived in these fires have said, why did my house survive? And they wonder why, why, why they had protection, why their homes seemed to be randomly picked out of all those that were destroyed to be left. Some of those who saw their houses just, just completely lost have asked the same question, why did that happen to me? Why have I lost everything? Why is everything down to zero? That's what we're going to try to wrap our little bitty brains around today. We're, we're, we don't expect to see the outcome of this to be a full understanding. So just, this is my disclaimer at the beginning today. We do not expect to have the full understanding when we're done. We just want to get a glimpse, just a piece, just an element of it. We want to start the process of thinking about this in a way that might bring some clarity to us. All right? So are we agreed that you, are, you and I are on a trip that neither of us can succeed in finishing? All right. So we're just going to start with, this, with, a, with a, a bit of an understanding and hope for the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we work through the process. So two things we talked about, two illustrations we gave from Scripture last week. One was the storm of the disciples. Remember the storm on the lake with the disciples and Jesus in the boat. If you remember that from last week, raise your hand. Whoa, we beat the 72-hour curfew on remembering. And the other one was the centurion and his need for his servant to be healed. Remember that story? Raise your hand if you remember from last week. Okay, some of you just are raising your hand because I said it was a good thing. But that's all right. 
So first of all, the story of that giant windy night, the disciples get into the bus with, or get into the boat with Jesus. And as they get into this boat, the Bible says they pushed off from shore, Jesus took a nap, and they were cruising along. Have you ever taken a nap in a boat that's rocking, that's rocking a little? It's one of my favorite things in the world, to be laying in a boat while it's rocking gently, while it's moving around. I even like it when it's moving more than just gently. That motion just puts me into such a deep sleep. And Jesus is out. He's had a big day. He's done a lot. I mean, you look at all that has happened right before this. There's a lot that it's gone on. And Jesus is tired, bone tired, and he falls asleep. We ought to, re- we ought to recognize also that for what this is, you get tired. You get worn out. You get stressed out. And so did Jesus. Because he took on the human body that is like yours. He took on the human body that suffers and gets hungry and gets cold and gets tired. And he knows and understands the experiences you've had. I, I wonder if sometime when Jesus was, oh, I don't know, 14 years old, if he was sitting there during one of the services at the, at the local synagogue. And the, uh, and the synagogue leader was waxing on and explaining the ancient Hebrew in some passage, esoterically tucked away in the Scriptures. And I wonder if Jesus ever got sleepy. And maybe a little bored. He took the same body that you and I took. The disciples are cruising out across the lake. The storm rolls in and it's huge. Hurricane strength winds. Massive storm is coming. Water begins to roll into the boat. And the disciples are, are bailing as quickly as they can. And in the middle of that storm somewhere, somebody says, Hey, isn't Jesus in the back of the boat sleeping? Somebody recognizes that the rescuer might be there right with them. And so they go to the back of the boat and they wake Jesus up. And they say, Lord, don't you care that we're going to die? Ever done that? Ever looked at your situation and said, God, don't you care that, fill in the blank, don't you care that my needs are not being met? Don't you care that I don't have anybody to love? Don't you care that I have a terrible person to love? Don't you care that I don't have enough money? Don't you care that my my money is ruining me? Don't you care? Don't you care? Don't you care? Don't you care? That's the question in the boat. Don't you care? Jesus looks at them and says, man, you guys could really do with a faith uh, adjustment. We really need to crank the volume up on your faith because you, you shouldn't be so worried right now. And he stands up. He rebukes the winds. And the Bible says suddenly there was a great calm. They go from hurricane force to quiet calm. And as they do, the disciples... <laughs> now, it doesn't tell us what Jesus does here. My, my picture of Jesus is, okay, oh. Back to his pillow. But the disciples just look at him and they're amazed. And they say, who is this man? Last week I told you that if you understood who was in the boat, you would enjoy the ride a lot better. We'll come back to that at the end. If you understood who was in the boat with you, you could relax and enjoy the ride a lot better. You could face whatever storms are coming with much more peace. So the other story was the story of the centurion who meets Jesus there in Capernaum after Jesus has healed the leper. He's preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's coming through. He's healing most everybody in Capernaum. This centurion meets him. And when this centurion meets him, he says to him, hey, I have this servant. He's very ill. He's, he's just a, a favorite. I love him very much. Could you, 
Could you take care of him? Could you heal him? Jesus says, sure, I'll come with you. Let's go to your house. And the guy says, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my house. I really, I'm, I'm, I'm a centurion. I'm a Roman. I'm not a good Jew. I'm not a good believer. I don't even deserve to have you come into my house. Have you ever said that to Jesus? Have you ever said, I understand why I'm having all this problem. It's because I'm a terrible person. What did I do wrong? It's the whole story of Job. What did you do wrong to cause all this stuff to happen to you? Have you ever said, God, I don't really deserve your help because I'm just bad? You know, I think that's a good place for our heads to get to. But I don't think it stops Jesus from wanting to help us. We take it a little too far. We say, I'm not good enough for God's help. No, 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 no. You're not good enough for God's help, but he wants to help anyway. That reality is where we live. We live in the place where, no, of course we're not good enough. It's because of Jesus that he helps. It's because of Jesus that he answers. It's because of what Jesus did, not because of what we did. He knows who we are. He knows that we're just dust. And so when we say, yeah, I'm not really worthy to have you come into my house, he says, I know, but I could come. I'll come anyway. And then this man says the most astonishing thing, one of the things that's, that amazes Jesus in scriptures. He says, just say the word where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this. Because I am under authority, the authority of my superior officer, and I have authority. He says, I understand that you have the authority to take care of this wherever you are. You don't need to be present. You don't need to follow a certain pattern. You can just do it because you are, in fact, imbued with the authority of God. Now, now put that in your long-term memory. The last, one of the last things Jesus says to his disciples is all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and in earth. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've chosen to head home, walk home with him, this authority is in the boat with you. Get it? All right. So now, today, what we want to tackle is, all right, so there's massive authority imbued in Jesus. So what in the world happens? What's going on? How does some of this stuff that we see, that we read in Scripture and that we see in our world, how does it come to be? So let's start with the temptation of Jesus. The first thing that happens is Jesus' ministry is established, is this moment, this altercation between Christ and Satan. We hear about it there in the beginning of Matthew. It's chapter 4. Jesus was led, out by, led by the Spirit. What spirit? An evil spirit? No, what spirit? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God? Yes, yeah, so God is leading God out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you think they know what's coming? Yeah. Yeah, they're not, they're, they're not unaware. unaware. They're, they're not, they don't, they're not worried about this. They've got it. They know it. The Godhead understands what's going on. They know the beginning from the end. They know the future. They know what's about to happen. So Jesus goes out and he spends 40 days prepping for the fight. And the 40 days he spends prepping seems weird to us. But for those next 40 days, he doesn't eat anything. And he becomes very, very, very hungry. So now in this weakened state, physically weaker, with this great anxiousness for something to eat, Satan picks his moment. You do realize that Satan picks his moment to come after you, right? The devil comes at you when you're weak. He comes at you when he knows you're in trouble. He comes at you when you're already struggling. This is one of the reasons, one of the great reasons for being careful what you allow into your life. If you know certain things put you in a bad place, stop doing them. 
Now, I do realize what I just said is a lot easier getting out of here than getting out of here, right? But we are, if, if you really want to see a change in the way things are going, if you really want to see a change in those moments when you really feel weakened, be wary of what you're doing that puts you in that space. Jesus is weak and Satan shows up. We just had this read. It was a, it was a wonderful reading. Thank you, Ethan Demo, wherever you went. Thank you. I, sometimes the kids are, there you are. The kids are in the seats and I, there's very little of them showing. So thank you both very much. But here's just a quick, quick note. Verse three. He says to him, Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God. Now get the first phrase. If you're really the son of God, if you really have the kind of authority that you should have if you're the son of God, if you're really the Messiah, if what people are saying about you is true, if what John the Baptist just said about you is true, if what your parents have said about you is true, if what you're beginning to discover about yourself is true, then turn that stone right there into bread. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever looked at a rock and said, that'd make a good sandwich? Why not? Because it is out of the realm of possibility for you. It is not out of the realm of possibility for Jesus. If he can feed 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, he can turn a rock into a loaf of bread. And feed himself. Jesus has the ability to do this. And Satan tempts him to use that ability, that authority that he has over nature for his own good. He tries to get Jesus to release his power for his own blessing. One of the hardest things I think that happens in the life of Jesus is the restraint of authority. I think it's one of the hardest things that happens right now. It's the restraint of his authority. You go read the story of Lazarus' resurrection and think about the days that Jesus waited knowing that his friend was sick and dying. From all we can tell in the scripture, one of his best friends outside of his discipleship group is sick and dying and he can do things about it, yet he does not. The whole conflict between good and evil is wrapped up in that little story. Do you remember what Jesus does when he gets to the tomb and the sisters are saying, if you had been here, if you had been here, Bible says, short little verse, just two words, Jesus wept. He wept for the pain that he did not prevent. Listen carefully. He wept for the pain that he did not prevent. Because when you have the power to stop it and you don't, you have to feel responsible for it. Get it? Jesus was asked to release his power for his own blessing. And he says, oh, no. Oh, no, you're not getting me with that. I'm not doing it. Forget it. You know, the scripture says you can't, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he moves on. So Satan manages in some, uh, some otherworldly fashion, some 
some physics we don't understand to snatch Jesus up from the wilderness and take him to one of the pinnacles in the temple. And they're standing on top of one of those high pinnacles. Now, if you think about it in in terms of of something you may be aware of, think of a a corner of one of the tall towers as being about 70 feet off the ground. Okay? Now think about the fact that it's sitting on the edge of a hill. So if you took him to the highest place, there's a corner in the temple where the trumpet was blown. This temple comes together at a corner on the hill. And where that corner is, the trumpet would be blown to, to call to worship. One of the reasons that is the place is because it's one of the highest places. And the sound would echo through the valleys from there and call across the valleys to all the people who might be able to come and, and, and worship. That particular place is not just about 70 feet off the ground. There is, there, there is below it stone, and then below those stones, the valley. So Jesus would have probably been taken up to that place, that corner of the temple where the trumpet would be, born, would be blown, stood at that corner and told, jump off. Because the Bible says that if you jump off, he will send his angels to take care of you. Satan will often, well, Satan will sometimes tempt you by quoting scripture. He will throw it back in your face. And if you do not have a broad enough breadth of the scripture as a whole, it can be a tough place to be. Jesus is tempted to jump off. He says, look, his angels will take charge of you. Go throw yourself off. It'll be okay. This text actually says that they'll take care of you. He says... You should not tempt the Lord your God. Now, how would God be tempted? You see, the question on this second one is simply to say, let God assert His power for your care. The cross is coming. The crucifixion, the prayers for restraint of it, the beatings, the embarrassment, the humiliation... People spitting in his face. All of that is coming. And the Father himself could intervene. And even the Father has to restrain his authority and his power. Do you get it? Are you following so far? As we're dealing with suffering in the earth, if you don't understand how God relates to the suffering of Jesus, you're going to misunderstand how He relates to the suffering of the world. If you don't understand how Jesus relates to the suffering of the world, you're going to misunderstand how God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit relate to the suffering in your own life. The Bible says they collect your tears. Well, I would rather not spill my tears if there's a, a, a choice. Don't just collect them. Just don't let them come. Can we just make this happy, joyful, singing songs all the way till I breathe my last and that's it? We all know that suffering exists in our world. It exists in our own lives. But if we don't understand that it breaks the heart of God, if we don't understand that He has to resist the temptation to intervene, we miss the story. This conflict, this great controversy as we've called it over the years, between good and evil catches us. We live in a war zone. We live in a conflict zone. Our entire planet, we talk about, oh, well, we live in the United States. We're not really dealing with anything that, like other people are dealing with. No, we're dealing with the same things, only it's in, a more, it's in a cosmic relationship as well. So understand, when you're talking about the suffering of our planet, you, you need to look at the Scripture carefully and understand how God is dealing with the sufferings of Jesus. 
Understand that Satan chose these things to tempt him with. The last temptation I'll just give you as, a, as bonus material. Think about it. Remember what it is. It says, bow down to me and I'll give you the whole world. It's simply an opportunity for Jesus to avoid the cross. It's an opportunity for Jesus to take the keys of the kingdom back and avoid the cross. But in order to do it, he has to give all authority to Satan himself. It's an opportunity to exchange authority for a lack of pain. And Satan will do that to us as well. Would you like to give me authority in your life in order to avoid pain? So I want to take you a, a little further. I submit, therefore, that restraining his power and authority was the greatest temptation of Jesus' entire life. Restraining his power and authority was the greatest temptation of Jesus' entire life, from beginning to end. The chosen edge... I almost want to walk to the back because this is real important. The, the chosen edge... The chosen edge. Get the word chosen. The chosen edge of his authority. By God's own authority. So we're not diminishing God's authority or his power. Some people argue, no, if God gives you choice, it takes away his authority. No, no, he gives you choice by his authority. It is his authority that establishes the ability for you to have choice. By God's authority, the edge of God's authority is your free will. By God's given authority, the edge of God's authority is your free will. He refuses to take away the power of choice. He refuses to take away your power to choose even when you're doing dumb things. Even though he knows the dumb things you're going to do, even though he knows the day, the hour, the moment when you're going to do it, he doesn't just make you sleep through that. Because to do so would be to manipulate your freedom of choice. And to manipulate your freedom of choice is to take you from an autonomous being into some sort of a robot. And as soon as that happens, the whole game is over. The whole story is done. And Satan is right because God manipulates things for his good. But if he allows you to make choices, even choices that are bad, even choices that harm you or harm others, then there is real free will in our culture, in our world, in our society. Are you with me? Okay. I'm building a theological discussion and argument, and I know sometimes when I get teacher theological, it can be a little tough. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep it interesting as I can. So here we are. The power of our choice. The earthly origin of suffering and sin. Note the word earthly. The earthly origin of suffering is sin. Sin arrived on the planet, suffering arrived on the planet with it. Those things, that, that initial start, the earthly origin of suffering is sin. The earthly origin of sin was a choice. You with me so far? Okay, next layer. My suffering can come from my choices. True? We think about this always with health. We think, okay, freedom of choice, health. I make bad health choices, I end up with re bad per repercussions. True? True, because health is a big deal to us. I've, I also, if I decide to drive stupidly, my choices can cause a problem with my health. It's not just what I eat. It also might be how I drive, right? My choices can affect my outcomes. You do realize that right here in the freedom of choice is where salvation lies. 
right here in the ability to choose is where your, your ultimate eternal destiny lies. Do you choose to follow Jesus? Do you not? Do you choose to accept his covering and his grace and his sacrifice? Or do you not? This is where it lies. If you're in that valley of choice, man, make this decision. Your eternity rests on this. Your eternity doesn't rest on whether you get all the way back to the house and get everything figured out. He meets you out on the road and walks you home. But it lies with you. The choice is still yours. So your choices have a huge impact on the outcomes of your life. Okay, now lots of other things are there, the DNA, the fact that you live in the armpit of the universe, all that sort of stuff, some decision made by DuPont 40 years ago, whatever is happening, it might be happening because of something else, and that's where the next piece is. My suffering comes often, can come from another person's choice. I could be minding my own business, going about my life, just behaving myself, and bam, somebody runs into me, somebody runs over me, and... The next thing I know, I'm meeting Jesus. Well, what happened? Somebody else made a bad choice that affected my life. Right? So we can be impacted by someone else's choice. Take that one all the way back to the beginning. The earthly origin of suffering is sin. The earthly origin of sin was a choice. Was it your choice? No. You've chosen some since, but you weren't there in the garden at the tree. Right? They're following the law. I know, I know, I know. When we start doing theological arguments and pieces like this, you'd much rather just stop and tell you a story. But it's important that you're going to understand the bigger story, that you understand the underpinnings of the story, okay? All right. Correct. Front row says, Jesus, the underpinnings of the story. God does not lack authority in our world. He has given choice, and therefore chosen to limit his activity. Okay, not if you hear me still. Okay, good. Not if you agree with me. Shake your head if you don't. I got to know where I, who I have to work with here. Shake the head, my head, your head if you're uncommitted. Okay. Some of you just refuse to vote. Therefore, again... The edge of God's authority is my free choice. He's chosen to limit his activity. No one is limiting his activity. You are not limiting his activity. He's chosen to limit his activity. Jesus said of the cross, No one takes my life. I lay it down freely. And I will take it up again. Understand that these are the choices of God because of his grace and his mercy and his love. He chose these things for you and I. Free choice, therefore, caused suffering. Got it? Now you can argue, well, God could have prevented it. Yep, but then he'd be, he'd be gaming the system. He could, have, he could have prevented them from making that choice. Yeah, but he'd be gaming the system. He could have not put the option for a bad, evil choice in the world, but then he'd be gaming the system. If he did not allow for people to choose wrong then there is no real choice. Do you understand? Okay. Oh, sorry. I didn't read you the text. He said to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you will die. Was that warning enough? Apparently it wasn't because they went to the devil's fruit stand and had a snack. And here we are waiting for Jesus to come back. Rebellion's response... Rebellion's response was a creator, as our creator, 
being far superior than any of his creation, he has to level the playing field by choosing to restrict himself. He has to level the playing field by choosing to restrict himself. Even Satan is one of God's creation. The creation by logical definition cannot be superior or even even with its creator. Okay? I know, I know. This is theologically for, theology, theology 401, not 101. Again, rebellion's response. Philippians chapter 2. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Who's the he? Jesus. The expression of God in human flesh. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Note himself. He humbled himself. He humbled himself and went to the cross. Why? Because that's how God responded to our rebellion. Because that's how God, with all the authority in heaven and earth, responded to our rebellion. He said, I'll become one of them and I'll die for them. First Peter chapter three, First Peter chapter three, verses four and verse six. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and now we live with great expectation. What are we expecting? We're expecting life to, to turn around, right? We're expecting things to get better. We're expecting eternity with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. The Bible never, 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 never has argued that your life will be perfect once you follow Jesus. The Bible has argued your life will be perfect once the mess gets cleaned up. Your life will be awesome once the mess gets cleaned up. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the end of time. This is after the destruction of sin. This is at the recreation of the earth without sin as its reigning power and authority. The Bible says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. You want to see the time when there are no more tears to be collected? This is the time. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. About 40 years ago, Just saying that seems extreme to me. I have lived long enough to have done some things 40 years ago. About 40 years ago. I wish I had thought of this illustration last week. I thought about it while we were doing second look class. I had flown to Hawaii with a crew to to, to sail a boat. Some of you know about this story. To sail a boat back 
from Hawaii. We had gone to the island of Kauai. We were in the Willy Willy Small Boat Harbor. I will never forget the name of the place. And we had to take the boat out to make sure it was seaworthy because we were going on a journey that was going to be about 3,000 miles across the ocean. It was going to take us about a month. So you probably needed to know that the boat wasn't going to sink. The boat had been there in the harbor for a while. It had gotten pretty badly gunked up. We had to actually scrape uh, barnacles off it to make it functional, particularly where it happened with the motor and and with the propeller. It had gotten so messed up that you really, it was non-functional until we cleaned it up. But as we got the boat ready, we thought, we decided, okay, we'll take it out on what they call a shakedown cruise. You know what a shakedown cruise is, right? You don't go too far away from shore. You don't do anything too crazy, but you want to see if everything's functional. So we were doing a shakedown cruise. We're heading out into Willy Willy Harbor. And we start the boat. We head, our, head out. We get the sails up. We start picking up some of the winds. There are almost always our breezes blowing in Hawaii. Picked up some of, the, some of those winds, and we start out of the harbor. As we cleared the end of the breakwater on the harbor, we hit an incoming swell from approaching rain. Now, we hit this swell, and the, 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 the purchase of a swell, so, so from the top of this one to the top of that one was about 10 seconds. Okay? Pretty quick. Amazingly fun quick. So we're going up one side, dropping into the trough, going up the other side, dropping into the trough, going up the other side, dropping. And it's about a 10-second trip. It was awesome. It was, it, was, it was one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life. My friend Joe and I, I was 17, he was 18. We went out to the bowsprit, which is about an eight-foot piece of wood that sticks out in the front of the boat. Don't worry about why it's there, but it's there. We were out there, and there's railing around it. We're holding on to it. But we are having the, the, the most amazing time. This boat is going literally up in the air, and we're probably, from the bottom of the trough, we're probably at least 15, 17 feet in the air, okay? And then it's going over the top of that thing and dropping the entire distance, boom, right into the bottom. You know, the back of the boat's going up, the front of the boat's going down, we hit the bottom, we come back up. It was fantastic. We're actually dipping the bowsprit in the water on occasion. So we'd go down, our feet would go under the water, and then we'd come back up. Water's flying everywhere. It's just this, it's, it is a, it is a level nine ride. It is beyond the capacity of anybody in Disneyland to, to make this work. It's a water ride. It's a roller coaster. It's everything you could ever want in a ride. And we're just having so much fun. Think about those guys in the boat. Think about those guys out on the Sea of Galilee riding out a hurricane with Jesus. You know why I was having fun? I had worked on this boat. I knew this boat literally inside and out. I knew that under the the water in this boat was a keel that ran the length of this boat. That keel was leaded and it weighed 16,000 pounds below the water level. This boat was made for days like this. This boat was built for experiences like this. I had no fear of the boat. The boat was good. At the helm, the guy who's holding the tiller back there was a guy named Steve. Steve later becomes a firefighter. He's a, he's a guy who's very diligent about his work. He's very diligent about what he's doing. I absolutely trusted Steve to keep us going in the right direction. Because if we go sideways into these waves, then we're in a whole bunch of trouble. We're not going to roll this boat, but it's just going to be messy and uncomfortable. And people are not going to be having fun. And we're not going to be having fun. We're going to have to go to work. But where I have absolute faith in Steve, the guy who owns the boat, whom I've been spending time with now for for years. I've been working on this boat for about two and a half years at this point. That guy is in the midship. 
He's just riding it out, having a good time. I know the boat. I know who I'm in the boat with. And I have absolute confidence that there's nothing to be done but enjoy the ride. You know, James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy when trials come to you. The word can be translated trials or temptations. Count it all joy, for these are the things that will strengthen your faith. Count it all joy when trials and temptations come to you. Because you know who is in the boat. You know who built the boat. You know that no matter what the storm has to offer, the end of this story has already been written. Your eternity is secure in the hands of God. And if you croak today, the next thing you see is Jesus. There is suffering in our world. There is suffering, suffering in our lives. There's no question about it. Anybody who tells you otherwise is not telling you the biblical truth. But there is no need to let suffering, trials, and temptations control who you are and drive you into fear and distrust of God. I cannot tell you you will not have problems. Some of you are dealing with them right now. You will certainly have problems. But God knows what you need. He knows who you are. He will use even the troubles that you're facing to strengthen you as you walk through the next one. God is not abandoning you. He's right in the boat with you. He can be trusted. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to the day when there is no more sorrow, no more trial, no more suffering, no more pain. And we trust you for the days between now and then. We choose to follow you. We choose to believe in you. And we choose to stay in the boat with you. We ask that you would help us not to be overwhelmed by fear. We ask that you would help us to be aware of how much you love us. And that if it were not for the restraint of this conflict we find ourselves in, you would have already wiped away every sorrow, all the pain, and death itself. Thank you. Amen. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus.
Sometimes it feels like I'm watching from the outside. Sometimes it feels like I'm breathing. But am I alive? I won't keep searching for answers that aren't here to find. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I Raging 